0: I was naive. I did not realize that there was a part of the vegan world that was not aware of systemic racism and not, not involved. You cannot separate food insecurity from systemic racism. You can't separate the climate crisis from systemic racism. And it is really important that people start to acknowledge that and speak out about it.
1: Hi, plant friends, and welcome to another episode of the PBN Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Lockie. On this week's episode, we meet Maggie Baird. It is impossible to ignore the incredible work that Maggie Baird has done as an American actress, voice artist, screenwriter, and founder of plant-based nonprofit organization Support and Feed. Much like her musician son Phineas and her pop star daughter Billie Eilish, Maggie is a passionate vegan and has inspired many to go plant-based. Maggie grew up in Colorado performing music and studied theater and dance at the University of Utah before moving to New York City where she performed on Broadway. She made her TV debut in 1981 in the soap opera Another World and in 1989, her film debut in An Innocent Man. She has also appeared in many television series such as Bones, The X-Files and Six Feet Under. As a vegan powerhouse, Maggie has continued to both entertain her admirers as well as encourage and enlighten new followers. In 2020, Maggie featured on a new plant-based cooking show on Amazon Prime video called New Day, New Chef. This hugely successful program centred around her organisation, Support & Feed, an initiative set up to help those greatly impacted by the coronavirus pandemic. Support & Feed has supported LA plant-based restaurants by encouraging people to gift order food for those in need. As further proof of Maggie's huge contribution, the organization was crowned 2020 company of the year by animal advocacy group Peter. Maggie also continues to be an advocate for the benefits of a vegan lifestyle on her social media, boasting strong and powerful messages that highlight animal welfare, sustainable living and the importance of looking out for those around us. I absolutely love this episode. Maggie is a wonderful person. And if you do enjoy this episode, please don't forget to comment, like and share. And if you're on iTunes, please do leave us a review. It really helps get the message out there. Thanks for listening and let's get to the episode. Thanks so much for joining us on the PBN Podcast, Maggie. It's really great to sit down with you.
0: Oh, thank you for having me. I'm really happy to be here.
1: Support and Feed gets food from vegan restaurants and delivers it to
0: those in need. So we want to introduce you to the plant-based chefs who are whipping up those healthy and tasty dishes. There's a thousand other things that Maggie could be doing, but she stepped in to help the vegan entrepreneurs, and we got hit really, really hard. Support and Feed is at the top of my gratitude list and being a part of it, and um, and knowing and working with Maggie is just it's out of this world.
1: So before we explore all the incredible and amazing things that you're doing with your life today, let's go back in time and tell us your plant-based veggie or vegan story. Where did it all begin for you?
0: Oh, interesting. I grew up in a small town in western Colorado and my father my father was wonderful as was my mother but my father was also a hunter and fisherman (laughs) so I grew up in a community of a lot of hunting and fishing and interestingly my furthest memories I never wanted to eat meat ever nor did my brothers interestingly they none of us wanted to eat it and in fact we you know in that day and age, not eating, it wasn't really an option. So we would sort of eat only the most kind of disguised meat and burnt, you know, just completely not recognizable. My my parents always joked that we were like, very cheap kids. They were, it was, we were, we were cheap to have because none of us ate any real meat. So that was really organic for me. I did not want to eat it. And you know, did as part of the culture until I sort of, each of us, my brothers are a bit older, you know, as we came of age said, I don't have to do this anymore. And nobody looked back. We never, ever ate it again. That was being a vegetarian at the time. Vegan wasn't even something I had ever heard of, you know, for for many years. And, you know, gradually when you learn about animal agriculture and dairy and eggs, then that becomes a part of the picture too. So that just was a gradual transition. I was a baker. So that was kind of a harder transition for a while. So I I was vegetarian really from, you know, teen years on. And then I've been vegan now officially for, I don't know, over a decade, maybe decade and a half. To, I, don't, I don't really know. Amazing.
1: Yeah, it all, yeah, it's, it's crazy how quickly time goes when you make a shift in your life before you know it. I'm, I've been vegan seven years now and it feels, feels like just yesterday that I made this change, um, but it feels like a lifetime ago. Going back to your childhood though, like you said your family were enrolled in hunting. What was different about you to all the other kids who grew up in families that hunt? Like, Why do you think that you rejected the idea of eating animals?
0: you know i don't know i often think about it you know my dad wasn't like a massive hunter it wasn't like all the time but it was sort of a seasonal thing and i i found that very upsetting i did not <laughs> that that i think partly it was that but obviously other kids have that same experience you know partly it was that i i had no disconnect from it it was like i i never i remember being made to sit at the table for Hours Because I wouldn't taste the venison, you know, and I was like, I'm not eating that deer, you know, there's no way I'm going to eat that. And, and like I say, my brothers were the same. I, I do think after having talked to lots of people about it, there are people like, like me, occasionally, where it's very organic, and, and it's almost it's just part of their DNA. Mm. I, don't, I don't really know why.
1: It's interesting that you say DNA because a friend of mine who works for one of the major newspapers here in the UK said that there's a study that has come out recently that may suggest that there are some people who are predisposed to a vegetarian slash vegan diet, that there are possibly genetic markers in our DNA that may be make us more prone to want to not eat meat, um, which is very interesting because obviously there's the cognitive decision there of like, you know, I don't want to eat animals. They're beautiful and they're friendly and they're these gentle beings. I don't want to kill them. And a lot of children are smart enough to know that. What do you think about the culture of kind of not telling children what meat is? Because you obviously were very aware of what meat was for a very young age, but there is this culture, um, in especially in the Western world, where children are fed uh, chicken and burgers and sausages—you know, things that are shaped in funny sh- in funny shapes—but they don't know that they're animals, and they don't find out till much later in life. Do you think that that is potentially harmful to our children, or should we should we be showing them what goes on in slaughterhouses, or what do you think? Okay.
0: Well. Uh, yeah, definitely. I think we should. I, I, We had a neighbor for a while who we loved. And she was a little girl. And she came over to our house. And we were talking about something. And my kids were pretty little, as was she. And something was, you know, it, it comes up. You don't eat you don't eat chicken? You don't eat this? They're like, yeah, we don't eat that. And they were asking why. And I, th- I said something about, well, you know, the animals. And I explained something. And she goes, wait, wait, you mean chicken is chicken like (laughs) she had no idea and you know the look on her face to have to process this information you know in a weird way I always felt that the hunting aspect of it has a little bit more cred (laughs) than people who will eat it, but say they would never hunt it, you know, that they would never be willing to kill an animal. Like, well, boy, you got to look at that. You know, I mean, you got to hand it to at least a person who is hunting. At least there's some consistency there. You know, even if, if I'm not a big fan, I absolutely think you need to know where your food comes from. And, you know, to me, again, like to me, eating an animal was literally like you told me to eat my own arm or like a block of wood. It's like, that's not, that doesn't seem like an edible substance to me. So I think it's really important for people not to disassociate what they're eating from where it comes from.
1: Mm, it's so important. And I think when we live in this hyper-sanitized, homogenized, sterilized world where we go to the supermarket every day to buy products and everything is cleanly packed and you know has these messages on it saying, humanely slaughtered and humanely raised. <laughs> I mean, it's particularly bad in the US, I would say, than anywhere else I've ever visited. I've not visited many countries, but this sort of supermarket culture where everything is so heavily processed and kind of packaged.
2: The diabetes, the arthritis, the heart disease, the dementia, the obesity, the cancers are affecting about 70%
1: of deaths. We have an epidemic cascade of debilitating disease that's overcoming the country. 18% of children are morbidly obese right now. We're on par to have one in three people be diabetic in the next 25 years. That's crazy
2: statistics. We have this very dangerous situation. Large amounts of these substances have unquestionably been associated with clogged arteries, high blood pressure, diabetes, autoimmune diseases, absolutely the science is solid. We're talking life and death
1: growing up in the US like how much of a challenge was that to sort of eat a healthy diet and stay you know stay healthy physically because on every corner there are billboards and every advert seems to be pushing junk food in some kind of way even sort of on kids TV soda pops and french fries and crisps and mcdonald's and burger king and all these different things how you know what was it like for you growing up in a country where there is so much of this stuff
0: i grew up in an era too where all of that was somewhat new you know and and almost marketed as the better choice right even like a cake mix better than making it from scratch you know or a frozen dinner or a you know the fast food and the convenience food was new and exciting. And so people like my mother's age were jumping on board, right? Make make mom's life easier because goodness knows mom's lives in that day and age and still are incredibly hard. You know, you spend your whole day shopping, cooking, you know, doing dishes and starting all over. So, you know, convenience food became all the rage. I, I mean, fortunately, we've we've gone away from that again. I think, you know, at least if you're alert and aware you've gone away from that. But yeah, in my in my childhood, I don't think anything was ever taught to me about health, to be honest. You know, when I was a kid, it wasn't even a food pyramid. It was a square, you know, it was like a square in four pieces and it was milk and it was meat. And wow. it was, you know, I mean, it was just the most I told my parents I didn't want to eat meat so young, and they were literally like, "Please, we beg you." They thought please. you were going
1: to die, right? Yeah,
0: from, they from... thought I was going to die, and they were mm. like, "Please, you know, you know, until you're grown up," and begging me because they just had been so indoctrinated.
1: Isn't that terrifying, though, that we 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 all grow up, we've grown up in this world where the meat and dairy industry and the egg industry as well is so powerful that it has this sort of ability to create fear in people's minds that if we don't consume these products, that our children will literally die. I mean, isn't it one of the most horrific injustices of, of modern history?
0: It really is. It really is. And we've created, you know, my, my mother died of a heart attack at age 57. You know, she'd grown up in a family where heart disease was prevalent and they were serious meat eaters and cheese eaters. And, you know, I mean, that was considered a healthy diet and that literally killed her, you know, killed her. And, you know, for me, you know, I have all those genes. And to be honest, I have high cholesterol genetically. And even on a vegan diet, I, I don't have super low cholesterol. I have much lower cholesterol, but I actually have to practically not eat to actually have safe levels of cholesterol because I have a a very extreme genetic predisposition. And isn't that scary that my parents didn't know that about themselves, you know, that they had that they were eating dairy and you know interestingly also it turned out that everyone in my current family me, Patrick, Billy, Phineas because Billy and Phineas were raised vegetarian and then I became a vegan. And then gradually, everyone became a vegan. But what we found out was that everyone in our family had a health problem related to dairy. Every one of us had a slightly different one. Mine was a, an arthritic reaction. Billy's was a, a, you know, gastrointestinal reaction. Phineas and Patrick both had these very extreme problems swallowing, like their esophagus would get swollen. And they had both been to the Patrick been to the doctor repeatedly for it and had several procedures for it. And then when he gave up dairy, unrelated to that, had no idea, it completely cured it for him. Literally a lifelong horrible issue he'd struggled with was gone within two
1: weeks. And he was no doubt being given all kinds of medicines and potions and pills from doctors to yeah, to deal and with he, it, right?
0: and in fact, when he saw his doctors next, he said, "You know, I I gave up dairy, and my problem went away." And the doctor scoffed, right? Wow. And then it turned out within maybe a year after that, the medical profession discovered something called eosinophilic. I'm going to get it wrong. I always going to get it wrong. Eosinophilic esophagitis.
1: Mm, which actually, basically- I met someone who had that. <laughs>
0: Yes, well, they discovered it after Patrick told the doctor you know that giving up dairy had cured his problem, and the doctor laughed at him. the medical profession discovered this, and indeed, it is an allergy in your esophagus, basically the cells that is most commonly to dairy and eggs and fish. I think the next one are the common allergens, nuts and soy, but you know in his case it was dairy so by accident he cured a lifelong nightmare so you know those are the kind of things where we were literally told our whole lives dairy is so healthy for you and in fact it was causing all of us tremendous dietary harm or it's, it's harm. such
1: a scam isn't it and i think you know di- <laughs> di- dairy does a body good is not science it's marketing and you know these companies have Held the power over people's pockets and also their health for for decades, and I'm really hoping that in the coming years we will be able to loosen the grip of these organizations. So Though it, it sometimes can be a challenge because they seemingly have infinite amounts of cash uh, and lobbyists mm-hmm. to kind of challenge governments and keep the status quo. But that's why but we're you know, here. When you
0: when you <laughs> mention that, when you mention that, Robbie, it makes me think about. You know, to be honest, all the lawsuits of the tobacco companies, etc. And when you have something like what I just said, where my husband had countless medical procedures and suffering because of something that was advertised as good for you, you know, it seems like they could be in some deep trouble if somebody decided to. I know. really
1: do. I think that there's huge opportunity. I mean, I think it took 9,000 studies for the FDA to finally say that cigarettes cause cancer. You know, that just shows how mm. much power wow. the tobacco industry had. And there was this this very famous um, memo that was leaked that was titled, Doubt is our product. And mm. they used so many techniques and tactics to keep people smoking. I mean, even the doctors would recommend cigarettes. Got a cold? Got a cough? Have a smooth cigarette. Um, oh you know, gosh. it was just insane. And you can understand now why people don't trust doctors because, Back then, they were being used to peddle these kinds of substances, which are highly harmful. And even now, today, many doctors don't know anything about nutrition at all. They get their nutrition advice the same place everybody else does—you know, mum, dad, grandma, the internet, a billboard. <laughs> you know, yeah. So uh, it, it can be hard to decide who to trust.
0: Yeah, it's really true. It's really true. Asking a doctor about nutrition expert is—it's <laughs> so ridiculous. I, I, I just. It, you know, it's such common sense that the thing you put in your body every day, all day long, is going to have the biggest impact on your health. I mean, you take one Advil, right? And it massively affects you, right? And yet you eat food all day and doctors don't prescribe that as the number one uh, thing you should be looking at. It's Crazy. incredible,
1: isn't it? You know, We are what we eat. And I think people take that for granted. Every single thing that we put in our mouth every single day, it either harms us or it helps us. The food that we consume builds our body cell by cell when we consume it. Our, our, the incredible universe that exists within our gut takes that food and transforms it, obviously, with the help of our gut microbiome, which is a whole other story, uh, or a universe, as some might say, and, be, and turns us into the people we are today. And there's a really fascinating uh, statistic that we are only 10% human. If you look at all the number (laughs) of bacterial cells in in the human body and the human cells, the bacterial cells outnumber us like 100 to 1 this' oh, wow. and and you know we' working we're walking around with about I think I don't know what it is in pounds but two and a half almost 3k kilograms worth of bacteria in us on us over us and this this living matter really keeps us flowing and keeps us growing and the irony is is that when we consume animal products it causes so much gut dysbiosis which is this the problem within the gut that it brings on so much disease and you know there's a whole hidden world and I think you know there's so much that we can learn about your nutrition and gut health and it's a really really fascinating exciting world to explore but going back to your childhood and you know back when you were very very young what are some of the things that you know you were interested in we did you really did were you really into animals you know did you have because obviously you had a you're a very very um, empathic person you obviously had empathy otherwise you would never have made those decisions or, or cognitive wanted to not eat meat did you have pets in the house did you have you know loving relationships with animals at the time
0: oh I loved animals so desperately and my father was quite allergic so we couldn't have animals in the house I did have a guinea pig and a bird and then we had a dog but you know it was in the era where you kept your dog outside, which is shocking to me now. But, you know, I I wanted a horse more than anything in the world. You know, I had Christmas lists where like it was just the word horse written for eight pages, (laughs) you know, the (laughs) classic. (laughs) I loved animals. I thought maybe I would grow up to be like a marine, you know, a marine biologist or, you know, something in the animal world. Definitely something that was very appealing to me. I didn't know about factory farms until much later. It's kind of interesting. So much of the stuff that I think about now and that I talk about now, I didn't even have an awareness of that for many years. You know, just it it was really for me just about like not going to kill something to eat it. That seems completely unnecessary. Why would you do that? You know, but then when I got into my 20s and I started to learn, I, I think I got my first fight factory farming t-shirt at about 20 years old, 21 years old, was from the farm sanctuary, actually. And that's when I started learning about the Amazon rainforest and Brazil and McDonald's. And it's so weird looking back at that time, because it was such a fringe thing to be a vegetarian. You know, God, like I said, I didn't even know a vegan. It was very fringe. It was very, I, I, I hate to say it, but I was... I was apologetic all the time for Mm. it. You know, I was always sort of apologizing, like, oh, I'm sorry, I don't eat meat. I'm sorry. Oh, don't mind me. I'll bring my own food, you know. And it's crazy now (laughs) to think about it. But, you know, we were seen as kind of like, Mm. you know, annoying outliers. outliers. Oh, I remember an aunt. (laughs) Some, Some aunt. I went to visit had told some other aunt because I didn't I wasn't um, I didn't live close to any of my relatives they lived on the east coast we lived on the west in Colorado and and someone had heard that I had enjoyed some dish they had made when I was a kid that had something in it and they made it and it was like chicken in it and I was like oh I'm so sorry I don't I don't eat that and I got yelled at, like, how, why would you do that? Why couldn't you just eat it and shut up? And Mm. I look back on it. I understand. And I can give myself empathy for the fact that I was, you know, and of course it was like, I, I want everybody to be happy and I don't want to impose on anybody. And it's my belief. And then, you know, as time goes on, you know, uh, now I'm quite the opposite now.
1: now yeah, I mean, like... that's that's the thing that we, you know, we're kind of conditioned to w- not cause trouble or be a bother or, you know, I think growing up in, in, in many sort of Western families, we're, we're, we're conditioned as children, I think, not to put other people out and that food is a gift and, you know, as a privilege to eat, you know, food prepared by others. And this is what what is the challenge with our community, a vegan community, which is a global community of people. We're all challenging our cultural norms and our cultural dishes there's so many ways in which food is is not just food it's entwined with our families and our grandmas and you know tradition like christmas and thanksgiving and then when we come along you know the little veggies or vegans saying uh, i don't want to eat that people don't understand our motivation and they Immediately see it as an affront or an insult, don't they, and they yeah. can't understand why we would be doing something like that and I get messages all the time from you know people as young as like thirteen you know- twelve and thirteen on on social media on Instagram saying, "Hi, I'm really struggling, my mum is forcing me to eat meat, and I desperately don't want to eat it. What do I do? How do I stop them forcing me and it breaks my heart because I can just imagine all these little boys and girls all over the world who you know, awakened like you did very young and are being kind of, in a way, kind of bullied (laughs) into, in a way being bullied into subverting what I believe is a true, the true nature of human beings, our innate compassion and kindness. And I think that that is what's kind of bred out of us as children, which is that compassion and kindness. And I, I don't know where it all began. I don't know whether it was just, you know, uh, the way we were as as people, we decided that we had to survive and that was all that mattered. And that not eating meat was considered something that just strange people did. But I mean, you you obviously mentioned that you brought your children up vegetarian. How was that? Because like, obviously they would have had friends as you mentioned who did eat meat was that a challenge did that did they struggle with being different and having that kind of difference at schools and and events i don't
0: i don't well my kids are homeschooled which made that easier but we had a lot of friends of course and most of their friends ate meat i don't think so because we always talked about why you know and i think that's the thing with kids if from the first moment you're like that comes from that animal And that's why we don't eat it. They go, they get that really fast, you know, (laughs) like they get it really fast. And, you know, somebody said to me, like, well, you know, isn't it their right to do what they want? I was like, you know what? It's my responsibility as a parent to care for their well being. And their well being includes their ethical well being. And I know personally that if I could go back in time and have never eaten meat, I would, I wish I could do that, right? So I'm going to give my kids that opportunity. They can change their mind when they're older, and they can do what they want. But as far as when they're under our care, we're going to give them this opportunity to have never partaken of this very negative industry. So it was. Uh, it was. I didn't really find it hard. And listen, I think it's a white privilege thing to say it's not hard, and so I fully grasp that. The reason I don't think it was hard, and that's not saying that it isn't challenging, because it is definitely challenging to find food sometimes. But hard, it, again, meat is an inedible substance to me, mm. right? So, yeah. and because that comes from a belief. If you do something for a belief, and especially not a belief that is strictly related to health, to be honest, like we're going to be less caring about our own health, I think, than we are about the belief of the not being cruel and the not damaging the planet and destroying the planet and causing agony and pain and suffering. That is pretty easy for me to follow through with. So I don't find it hard. I do find sometimes, and certainly with kids, it was challenging to to always find food. And that's part of the reason I think it took me longer to become a vegan, because you know, we've made massive changes in the last 5-10 years in the in the vegan options of substitutions, right? But, you know, even when my kids were little, they didn't drink milk. We had soy milk, but there mm-hmm. wasn't almond milk and oat milk and everything else, you know? <laughs> I mean, even, you know, Phineas is 23 years old, you know, 23 years old. Yeah, there wasn't almond milk. I don't, I, I never saw it anyway. So it was harder to do the the, da- the dairy stuff because, you know, kids are like, every pizza, every party is a pizza party, you know, ice cream and pizza are just like, everywhere so that was that was challenging and i think for parents of younger kids that is more challenging Although now it is definitely easier, all of those things are, you know, we used to get a pizza, leave the cheese off, you know. Well, most kids are not happy with that choice.
2: <laughs> Duh. Well, I grew up vegetarian, so I never actually have had meat in my life, like ever. So becoming vegan wasn't like a huge deal for me because, like, meat was never a thing in my life. So it wasn't like I missed meat. It wasn't like I had something to miss, you know. I feel like when you've grown up with meat and you try to go vegan, it's like a lot harder because it's like, you know know what you're missing you know what you can't have and stuff but dude animals bro like well, i just don't i just don't understand the point why would you eat an animal when you could eat some chips <laughs> like it doesn't make sense to me and it's just like i don't know people sort of come up with excuses on like you know all animals die anyway like we die anyway am i gonna you kill me because i'm gonna die eventually like that doesn't make any sense
1: i'm interested about what you said about like belief right we are often told that by non vegans, don't come and force your beliefs down my throat. And isn't that ironic? Because choosing to eat animals uh, and consume animals when it's not necessary is still a belief. And I absolutely love what Dr. Melanie Joy says. And she talks about carnism is essentially the opposite of veganism, carn meaning flesh or the fleshism, so a belief system about eating and consuming flesh.
2: Now when it comes to vegans and
0: non-vegans in relationships, the playing field is not level. Vegans are members of a non-dominant social group. Vegans are, you know, move through the world with their experience largely misunderstood. There are a lot of stereotypes about vegans that shape non-vegans'
2: perceptions of vegans and can get in the way of relationships. So it's important for both people to witness each other and it's especially important for the non-vegan in the vegans' life to be willing to look at the world through the vegans' eyes. What vegans can do, and I believe need to do, is to ask the people in their lives to learn about veganism, not to convert them to veganism, but so that those other people can understand the vegan. It's impossible to have a connected, secure relationship if we don't understand each other's worlds.
1: Because carnism is invisible, people really realize that eating animals is a choice rather than a given. In meat-eating cultures around the world, people typically don't think about why they eat certain animals and not others, or why they eat any animals at all. But when eating animals is not a necessity, which is the case for many people in the world today, then it is a choice. And choices always stem from beliefs, which I think is so powerful.
0: That is amazing. Yeah, that is amazing. <laughs> you know, the, the animal, the the talking about the animals, the choices of what animals people eat, you know, I have you spent any time with a cow that is the sweetest, kindest, gentlest, most adorable animal, you know you know, the fact that people have chosen to eat that animal and not to eat a dog, you know, in cult, some cultures, they do eat a dog, you know, and exactly what you're saying. It's like, the beliefs of many people to eat animals is foisted on me every day since I was a small child, you know, you're you're absolutely right. And, you know, the belief in, in one belief comes from listen, people can have decided what they've decided on, on a whatever level they have. But, you know, the choice that I have made that people who don't eat animals is to not participate in something that causes horrible, cruel agonizing pain and suffering.
1: Because you now have awareness. And Melanie, Dr. Melanie Joy goes on to say, as long as we remain unaware of how carnism impacts us, we will be unable to make our food choices freely because without awareness, there is no free choice. And that's the thing. That's what the vegan movement exists for as a counterculture to carnism. We are here to exist, to inform humanity unfortunately 99% still, that eating animals is a choice and not a necessity. And that actually, when we stop doing it, we transform our health, we protect the rivers, we protect the oceans, we protect the forests and the mountains and, and all the wonderful species of our world. And that's why that, you know, I'm this is what gets me out of bed every single day and I'm sure it's one of the many reasons that drives you you know you are involved in so many different wonderful things and you know just obviously staying on your kids for a while you are the mom of two very famous kids who are very popular in the music world how has it been with them and this message because they both seem very outspoken they seem to have really taken your heart and and sort of, you know, you've brought them up really well. And I'm so, you know, happy to to see such passionate people in the world, because the young people, you know, need role models, and they need people who are not afraid to speak out. Talk us through a little bit about how you've inspired the the sort of activist, right, within them.
0: Well, I think that it's just part of our family. You know, it's part of it's part of my nature especially to talk about it and to talk about all the reasons and because i have become quite obsessed with it like you it is what i live and breathe especially dealing with the climate crisis you know it doesn't ever take away from the fact that i have deep personal beliefs about animals and suffering of animals and the thing about vegan food is everyone can eat vegan food you know it's a funny thing um I've been in places a couple of times. We had incredible vegan catering on uh, the last tour from a company called Eat Your Heart Out. Incredible, and and no one, um, everyone was just blown away. But a couple times before, we would have vegan catering, which was really good. But I'd hear like a a, a crew member or something say, "Oh gosh, it's all vegan. There's nothing I can eat here." I was like, "No, yeah, <laughs> you know, the thing about vegan food is everyone can eat vegan food." You know, currently. The animal agricultural effect on the climate crisis, as we know, is is dire and we have to act urgently. So the urgency of that, you know, takes away from the kind of live by example, peaceful change where you have to be a little bit more urgent with your message. You can't be apologetic. (laughs) You can't be apologetic. It's like, you know, like, why am I apologizing for something that I know is right and true? So they've certainly grown up with that and conversations about that. And, and listen, we're, we're, we're tolerant of our friends and we, you know, we don't spend every minute alienating our friends, <laughs> but we're also not going to apologize for it. And, you know, I think they've just grown up in a household where it's just simply talked about so much, but, but at the same time, they've definitely come to it on their own as well. And, and that's been really great to see, you know, that, you know I, to to witness billy you know especially billy just because she's she's the younger one watch a documentary by uh, sir david attenborough you know and, and come to her own realizations you know oh it's not just my mom who says it <laughs> you know <laughs> and you know as as you know you just get out and you know phineas is an avid podcast reader listener and reader and and you know reads everything about everything and you know, to see them take it all in themselves. I mean, you can't argue with it. It's it's scientific fact. And so when you're presented with it, I talk about this on my own Instagram lives. You know, what is the thing that makes one person speak out and one person not? You know, or make one person make a change and one person not? Because I think we really have to analyze that and give people empathy for whatever it is that makes them not able to do that in the moment, or whatever, and and help them with empathy so that they ultimately can. Uh, I guess I say that because for for whatever reason, luckily my kids have been able to embrace the science and the facts and the truth and see it and and realize how urgent it is. And also, they're fortunate; they are in an era where. A, an artist's career is not ended overnight. I mean, listen, artists' careers can be ended overnight for all kinds of things, mm. but not typically for, you know, being brave enough to to speak the truth about these animal and, and environmental policies. So they are lucky in that regard. Listen, it's still brave, to be honest. It, you know, artists still can get a, get a rough a rough uh, go from it but
1: uh, yeah we're kind of just uh, you would say that kind of as as people who have a public face you're almost sort of like told to stay in your lane right if you are involved mm-hmm. in a particular topic or niche you um want to not step outside of that and you don't want to rock the boat because actually you may have a broad church of an audience and you don't want to stir up any ill feelings but you know we got to speak truth to power and i really am always inspired by Billy and Phineas and, and also, and of course you as well, you, you're always online, always talking and sharing and, and being, you know, just unashamed to sort of speak those truths because it could be so easy, easy for you as a family, not to, to bother and just, you know, focus on the your music and your, and your acting and your, and your creative careers and not actually worry about that because there's a lot of people like that who are very fortunate um, when they're and have done very well in their careers but they they don't speak on these matters because they're worried perhaps about how they'll be perceived or they'll be worried about some people within their audiences or their following who might not agree with them but i think it's so great that you guys have just taken the science and taken the facts and, and you're not ashamed and afraid to speak about it because we really really need it
2: the people of this nation have spoken They've delivered us a clear victory, a convincing victory, a victory for we, the people. We've won with the most votes ever cast from presidential ticket in the history of the nation, 74 million. Well, I must admit it surprised me tonight. We're seeing all over this nation, all cities and all parts of the country, indeed
0: across the world, an outpouring of joy, of hope, renewed
2: faith in tomorrow, bring a better day.
1: And I'm humbled by the trust and confidence you placed in me. One thing, obviously, that I absolutely love was that your fo- your family very vocal about the recent election, which was amazing. I I loved all the messages and the you know the the, the stories and everything. You you how did you celebrate the presidency? You know this this shift and uh, and what do you think it means for for the for the environment and for veganism and also things like the Paris Agreement?
0: Well. first of all, it means we have a chance. We literally have a chance at survival because I really was quite worried that we didn't for a while there. Um, You know, I think an interesting story in our family and for many people of of my kids' age is that when the last election, when Trump won, you know, the day I had insisted that everyone go to vote together, you know, for I was wearing my white and it was going to be this historic day of a woman president, you know, and of course it turned out to be so not that. And everyone, Phineas and Billy and and their friends talk about how that day that their parents really kind of let them down in that we we didn't do the thing parents are supposed to do where they're like it's going to be okay and we've seen tough times so we can get through that no we all fell apart we were all like oh my gosh this is bad this is no. so bad this is the worst it ever was bad. <laughs> <This> <laughs> terrible. And, you know the kids were all scared you know yeah. they were all teenagers and they were like mom you know it's 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 not going to be that bad and we're like no it really is bad and then You know, and then it turned out to be worse because we had someone in office who was literally going backwards and going backwards in social programs and social justice and environmental reform and, you know, everything. And it it was a very scary and stressful four years. And, you know, isn't it crazy, Robbie, that we are living in a moment in time when the very fact of our survival on earth is at stake we're and in that deni- moment they make
1: denied by and, 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 being de- denied. and being denied its very existence by one of the most powerful men in the world isn't that mind-blowing
0: it was mind-blowing it was like being in a dystopian novel like mm. oh my gosh I, have
1: you seen black mirror you know the food oh TV. yeah i was like totally. when trump got into power uh, we had Brexit, and then Trump got into power, and I just said, we've slipped into a parallel universe. We are in a Black Mirror episode. I'm certain, I'm certain of that. We've Absolutely. shifted and, into a parallel universe.
0: <laughs> parallel universe, and just going backwards, and really maybe not yeah. redeemable. And so, you know, we just threw everything we had at, at, at trying to help get someone in office, Biden, who who would do what he is fortunately actually doing and following through with i know within and weeks
1: within days he's he's signing deals and re- reversing the hideous uh, policies of of donald
0: because he's listening to scientists and scientists are saying loud and clear mm. it is urgent and you know this this harkens back to something we said earlier which was talking about um I don't know what it was, but you know, I, I was once talking to somebody about the movie Game Changers and I was I was working the day after and somebody I was talking about and they said, Yes, but I've seen, you know, rebuttals from the other side. And I was like, Yeah, and where do those come from? <laughs> you know, when you look at the difference between the meat industry, which is a you know multi-billion dollar industry saying something, as opposed to scientists who literally have Really, nothing to gain from mm. telling there's no you. No broccoli lobby.
1: It? No broccoli lobby, as Doctor <laughs> no. Greg will say.
0: Yeah, there's no broccoli lobby. Like, why would they lie? Like, what do they have to gain from that? And why? Why would I'm scientists you
1: be- to eat more sprouts? <laughs>
0: Yeah, exactly. Or, or telling you that the uh, you know the polar ice caps are melting and the sea level is rising and we're in grave danger. What do they have to gain by that? Look at that. And yet, what do oil companies and coal companies? What do they have to gain? A tremendous amount A tremendous of money. Tremendous
1: amount of money. Right. Short-termism. <laughs> and but you know, let's get real here. Seventy million Americans voted for Donald Trump in the last election, which is uh-huh. mind-blowing. As an American, as someone who's grown up in this country, in that country, your country, how how do you, uh, you know, because there's some pretty scary numbers coming out that because of what Trump did, he he created so much doubt that there is a concern now that over 60% of the people who voted for him are not going to trust the next election result or may not even vote.
2: Mm.
1: It is really terrifying and this has all come because of social media
0: exactly i was going to say the exact same thing that the problem is and and where i just don't know if we can put the genie back in the bottle you know is that if people are getting their news from illegitimate sources which they are which was you know which Donald Trump promoted real news as fake news and fake right. news as real news. You know the doubt world is, is our product, right? Exact doubt is our product, and so I don't know how we compensate for this because we no longer have people trusting legitimate news. I I unfriended quite a few people on Facebook. Not not something I used to do unfriending. I used to just kind of unfollow, but I was like, oh, it's a new it's a new era. <laughs> I cannot have these I have somebody's posts popping up on my feed or anything of, you know, seemingly intelligent people who were falling for the most insane insane conspiracy theories and 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 actual I don't want to use the term "fake news" because Trump coined that term.
1: Disinformation, I call it. Information purposefully created to mislead and confuse. That's right. Mm.
0: Yes, and people that you cannot believe were were buying it. Were buying it, and that is what scares me most. I don't know what we're going to do when it is a a
1: monster isn't it i think about it all the time i personally have a huge problem with misinformation um in my circle of friends there is a lot of misinformation around vaccines a lot of misinformation around the voting in the u.s is every corner of every piece of knowledge there it's sort of you know, we. I think when the internet first started being used you know, widely sort of tw- some 20 years ago, people thought that it would be this incredible technology that would free us all and give us instant access to information. But all it's done is it's created an opportunity for us to drown in information because we really are drowning in it. And people don't know how to decipher what is true and what isn't, what is real information and what is disinformation. The social dilemma, which I talk about all the time on this podcast, is incredible documentary on Netflix. Yes, I've seen it. it. And it's, uh, yeah, very sobering. And it talks about how information, fake information travels six times faster than true information because humans by their nature seem to love gossip, drama, um, negativity, you know, these sort of like very heavy emotions. And what is terrifying and scary is that social networks are profiting off this kind of rhetoric because when people are fighting, when people are arguing, when people are bickering on social networks, it drives engagement and it keeps people hooked because people want to come back again and again and again, injecting their opinions and their views your kids are in their twenties, so social media hasn't been around that long. Can really you imagine? Is, really can me. you imagine what it's like being growing, bringing up kids today with all these these tools and all this software and all these apps, and how much of a challenge it must be to sort of keep your kids getting sucked into things like QAnon? Dare I mention them? You know these kind of conspiracy theories.
0: <laughs> I, I i noticed even a difference phineas is four years older than billy she billy's 19 she just turned 19 in december and even between their age difference i saw a big difference in how much social media and the phone and everything impacted their life you know you know the term like they're natives uh to internet you know they're it's 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 they've grown up with it. But the difference in that four years was massive. And I think from Billy to, as you say, littler kids, it's massive. And I do not know the answer. I felt like we were parenting kind of as pioneers because there was not a parenting book written when Patrick and I were parenting our kids there was not yet a parenting book written that talked about social media or that talked about phones even. And so any book you were reading was kind of obsolete. And we are like, wow, we are an experimental group. Nobody quite knows how things are going to affect everyone long-term. Nobody knows any of the consequences. Right. And, and it's getting worse and worse. It is, it is truly <laughs> terrifying. And I don't... I don't see the answer to it. I just don't see it.
1: But what's interesting about your family is, you know, I mean, I have a a small taste of it, but the average person may have a few followers, a few hundred followers. Um, We've got about two and a half million on our platform. Billy's got, what, 10 million or something like that. That, (laughs) I can't even imagine what it must feel like to have, be connected to so many different people and to be open to that many people do you and Billy and Phineas do you ever sort of struggle with the sort of what sometimes feels like a tsunami of people
0: yeah I mean I guess in many ways you can't really take it in it's just not (laughs) you know what I mean it's not something you can actually take in you know Mm. so I don't know it's sort of just a number in a in a way it doesn't really relate I, I think you just have to personally take on a a value system. And, you know, you have to be willing to ignore a lot of stuff and not look at stuff and not read things. That's what I mean, comment section. You have to shut that off. Yeah, yeah. you have to really (sighs) just try not to see it. And I think that's true for everybody, though. I think, you know, any old, any person on Facebook, you have to be careful what you read, because as you say, people are so inflammatory and people will comment things that you're like, do you actually believe that? And then they'll get into arguments with people. And and yeah, it is kind of compelling. You find yourself wanting to look at it and then you feel your body being so stressed by it and you just have to turn it off. But in turning it off, I do wonder, how are we going to cope with it as a society? How do we cope with the fact that someone can... Not to disparage basements, but sit in their basement <laughs> and make up uh, an entire, entire conspiracy made from whole cloth, and have it people believe it and buy it and defend it and. I don't know how we ever go back and uh, it it is really really scary. Mm.
1: It is, it is. But one thing that helps us get through all of this are the people around us. You've been uh, with Patrick for some 26 years. Uh, that's a that's a long marriage and um That's just what,
0: marriage. We would live together for 11 years before. Wow, amazing.
1: That. Uh, childhood <laughs> sweethearts. What are some of the the sort of kind of tips about you know happy marriage and 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 a sort of you know a a balanced family because you all seem like a very you know close family closely knit family and I think You know, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it's probably one of the things that, you know, keeps, keeps everything moving for you. I think a lot of families are very disconnected. It's hard to, to get through all of this stuff, not just, you know, the challenges of social media life, but, you know, living, you know, in a, in a very public facing family, you know, what are some of the sort of tips and and tricks about, um, your marriage that, that you could share?
0: Well, I think, I think it's a tip that most people probably won't follow, (laughs) but, um, (laughs) Which is, I think, live in a small house. Like, don't live in a big house. You know, our house is small. It's all we could afford um, at the time. And, well, for, for a really long time, that's all we could afford. We were lucky to even keep it at some point. And I certainly would have approved of another bedroom and another bathroom. But I think you got to keep your family close. Keep keep close by. And even in a house, you can get very separated from your family. You cannot know what's going on in another room. You can get very isolated. So whether that's metaphorical or actual, I think it's still important. You know, have a small house might just be a metaphor, but keep everyone, (laughs) keep everybody close by, you know, be involved with each other. Don't put the acquisition of things above the... Closeness of your family and the time spent together. You know, I think in general, we have a society where we acquire things and then we have to work to keep those things. And you got to work really, really hard in life just to keep the smallest amount of things. But if you start acquiring even bigger things, that's just more time away. So I think this sounds so cliche, but you know, putting your family first, making every choice you make what's right for your family. And sometimes sometimes, unfortunately, what's right for your family is you've got to take a really hard job that works horribly brutal hours because that's what you've got to do to to pay your rent or pay your mortgage. And that's the only choice you have. But whenever you have a choice that involves time spent with your family, make that choice. I, I think that's probably what, what we did. And I heard Paul McCartney say something similar once. He said that he'd grown up in a small house. His parents or he raised his kids in a small house. I think at one point they had a circular house. And mm-hmm. I think Stella McCartley told me that they would say, go run around the house. And they would literally run around the house. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, you know, so I, think, I think it sounds very pedantic and simple. But know what your kids are doing and be involved in it and be be the house where everyone wants to be. Like we tried really hard to be the fun house. You know, whatever that meant, you know. And but we it's were so hard,
1: right? This it, it's so hard at the moment in, in this world to be present, right? I've seen so many families, you know, surgically attached to their phones. I see mums and dads in the park like glued to their phones while their kids are climbing up trees and Sort of potentially falling out out of the trees and cracking their heads. There, we live in a very distracted world, and I think it's such great advice. And you know, we do need to um, be aware of the people right in front of us and to cherish the people right in front of us, because so many of us can be so preoccupied with that. Whether it's ten people or ten million people in the phone in the black mirror, uh, forgetting, that there are people right in front of us that that need our love and attention. You know, I, I'm guil- as guilty of it than any as anybody else of being so caught up in plant-based news and my work that I neglect my partner and my family um, because the demands of being part of a media outlet is. Uh, it's it's never ending. Um and one has to pull oneself away consciously and say put the phone down, disconnect for a few hours, go listen to some music, go for a walk, go for a ride. You know, the world is still going to be there when you come back.
0: <laughs> yeah, and I think part of the problem is that now our work and the social media stuff is all on the same it's all it's all in the same place, right? It's not like you know, if you go, I mean, maybe if you're in manual labor, you you get a break from that in a way because you go and you do the job. But so much of our work is on our computer, and it's like, wow, you know, Instagram you is just it. a hop away, right? Mm-hmm. And 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 it is kind of your escape, right? And and I I, I too feel kind of brokenhearted when I see parents with their kids at, out, and I'm like, they're on their phone, and their kids right there. You're gonna miss it. It's so. But, but the problem is your phone and all of that is wired mm. to make your brain crave it. right? And, and maybe your brain is craving it more than that sweet little intimate conversation you could be having with your child. That's so heartbreaking. On the other hand, I was once at a, a coffee shop in our neighborhood, Habitat, which I haven't been to in, since the quarantine. But uh, there was a dad there with a little kid. And the kid was in a stroller and had an iPad. And I didn't say or think anything quite honestly, but the dad instantly started apologizing to me <laughs> like, Oh, I'm sorry. He's on his iPad. You know, it's just been a really hard day. And, you know, we know, we
1: know that digital pacifiers, right. <laughs> yeah.
0: And I felt, but I felt so bad for him because he clearly thought he was being judged, you know, and felt the need to apologize to a total stranger. <laughs> and I was like, listen, I get it. There are, there are some rough days when you're parenting and, Gosh, if I had had an iPad some of those days, I, I would have been happy to have that too. But I think his impulse was kind of the right one, which is it's got to be only in those emergency things or it's got to be when it's, you know, appropriate. I don't know. It, it's hard. It's It is hard to build boundaries, other.
1: right? Because it's so addictive and, you know, it's such a. So
0: addictive and a... because you're working on it, you know, I think, you know, people who are working on their phones, they're getting messages. And, you know, here's the other thing largely people now read on their phones or their tablets and so and shop, sometimes and
1: chat and and they
0: shop and they exactly order taxis. they do yeah so sometimes you kind of feel judgy about people mm. or about yourselves and you're like mm. They could be reading a book. They could, be, or they could
1: be talking to their grandma. I, I talked to my 99-year-old grandma on WhatsApp. I mean, how crazy is
0: that? Oh, that's awesome. Well, Billy did a campaign where telecom that it was kind of about that, you know, that young people are also using their phones for really, really important and amazing things. And we, we can't forget that. It's just being able to put it down, put it down and be present with people.
2: That is the hardest part. Look at us. Just a bunch of kids that are screen-obsessed, disconnected, not in the moment, right? Because, like, how can a generation that lives online know anything about the real world? We're just clicking and swiping our way through life. Phones in our hands, and our heads in the cloud. More than half of the world population is under the age of 30. 30. So I believe it to be a moral obligation to involve youth in decision-making processes. Well, you know what? When it comes to what we really care about, sometimes yeah. The difference we can make means even more now. go So maybe next time they see us staring at a screen And they ask us what we're doing on it. Quiet when I'm coming. Home. Why don't we show them? My. what we're doing with it. I could lie, say I like it like that Like it like
1: that Changing track a bit, um, one of the Thing, many things that you've done with your life is acting and performance. Um, I was looking at your filmography, and there's a l- very long list of TV shows and stuff and films and things you've been in. There's, there's several yeah. of my favorite <laughs> TV shows in here. Some of my favorites like X Files and Charmed and Six <laughs> Feet Under. And you've been in quite a few of these different shows, which I absolutely loved over the last few years. How did you get into acting, and what was it like? What's it been like being involved in in what is from what seems like on the outside a very kind of unusual and crazy world
0: (laughs) you know oddly again growing up in a small town in western colorado wanting to never eat meat i also always wanted to be an actor (laughs) (laughs) like from from my earliest thing i was like oh i'm going to be an actor i don't know why i don't really know why i got that idea but it was kind of my all I really wanted to do sometimes I did want to be like a marine biologist on the side you know but I always wanted to be an actor and I went to college and studied acting and went to move to New York left college moved to New York City from you know kind of a big adventure from from a small town person but yeah I just was very driven to do it and did all the kind of traditional steps, you know, moved to New York City and went on auditions and got my equity card and, you know, all the kind of things we do here. Worked in the theater first for many years and then got some television jobs. And, you know, I'm what what we refer to as a working class actor. You know, I've managed to basically make a living as an actor. I also did a fair amount of teaching along the way for lots of things, partly to make money and also partly because when I'm interested in something, I usually like to teach it, you know. So a lot of things I ended up teaching aerial circus and teaching music to uh, families and teaching improv at the Groundlings where I was a company member. So teaching is something I love to do in addition to sometimes being a source of income. But yeah, I'm kind of a working class actor, you know, have (laughs) been cut out of many movies you know as all of us have like oh some of my best work is on the cutting room floor but you know managed to kind of piece together a career Mm. and basically a living for most of it
1: Mm. but you Um, enjoyed it it's been what was it was it what was it like being in that world because obviously it's 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 not um, like anything else really you compare to just the the culture of what sort of film and tv is it's very intense it's very as you say it's very image heavy and very kind of focused on this final result right Um, yeah
0: well i think it's very different now because people are judged so much on their social media again you know so it's quite a different world now than when i was a young actor i think there's benefits now people can create their own content you know i did make a movie at in 2012 i co-wrote a movie and then was a co producer on a, on the movie, starred in the movie with my with, Phine- with Phineas, Life Inside Out. Yeah. What's going on, Shane? Shane has decided to take this year off. Wait, honey? What? When did this happen? What the hell for?
2: So you practice knitting? The more food they have to resist, the more people buy. That's the first thing they teach you at the Magical Memories
0: Weekend Seminar. If selling stickers and fun scissors to my friends wasn't my idea of a living hell, I would jump right into your multi-level marketing dream. But it's just not me. Whatever. That was a very rewarding experience because I love independent movies. I love watching them. I love small personal stories. Those are my favorite kind of movies. So that's the movie I made. And we, we worked really hard on it. And that, that was a very and you won rewarding some We won so many awards. We won many audience favorite awards, many jury prizes, um, went to 22 film festivals. So that was really fun. And we raised the money mostly on Kickstarter. And then with a few other donors, um, investors. But that was a real labor of love and a high point in my career, I would say, not for the result of it, but just the experience of doing it, you know?
1: And also, Phineas was in it with you. So you were there with your son on on the screen.
0: Yeah, that was an incredible experience. And, you know, part of the reason I did it was because not only do I love film and I love acting and I, I felt like I had a good story I wanted to tell. But I also wanted to show my kids at the time, you know, of course, this is before any of this craziness happened with, with Billy and Phineas, I wanted to give them an example that you could make something happen, you know, that you don't have to, one of the hard things about being an actor, and maybe a little bit less now, but, but still, is that you're so, uh, you know your your life is so determined by other people do you have an audition did you get the job do they like what you you know it's so much on what other people are doing and so i wanted to do something where it was really kind of all on me like of course a lot of people worked on it too but where listen i have a story to tell i'm not going to write a movie and try to sell it i'm just going to make it and how do you do that? How do you make a movie? Like how do, how does that work? And mm-hmm. we shot that movie for one hundred twenty thousand dollars,
1: which wow. is Amazing. kind of
0: mind blowing to me now. Um- <laughs> that's an achievement. Yeah, but I mean, it was a lot of money. We yeah. it was hard to get that money, yeah. and it, we spent we, every penny of it. We you know we used. No, free- that's
1: what I mean as a as a crowdfunding Kickstarter. A kick- Kickstarter? Okay.
0: Yeah, we got yeah. forty-two thousand, I think, on Kickstarter. I think forty-seven with an extra contribution, and then we raised some money. But that's an incredibly small budget for a feature film.
1: <laughs> it is, but but something that you r- raised on your own without kind yeah. of big backers. I think it's, it's without any big, big
0: backers, big achievement. Yeah, and with a lot of favors and a lot of people working for you know for for you know reduced prices and generous prices and and a lot of. You know, because the, the director and the, and the uh, cinematographer and the producer were all people, we were all doing it and my co-writer as a labor of love. And, you know, it just makes all the difference when you're just in it for the reason of doing it and not for what is going to happen at the end of it, you know?
1: Things turn out, whether it's food or film or personal projects, when people do it for the love you can always see you can always tell and that leads me very nicely on as a nice segue into what you're doing now which is support and feed which is a labor of love right um yeah and tell us about support and feed where did the idea come from and where are we today with it
0: well, thanks for asking. Uh, support and feed. We First of all, I was on tour with Billy. Billy was on tour and we were having an amazing time. We had ve- all vegan catering. We had a very green tour. We had Reverb with us to make sure everything was green in the venues. And of course, we got shut down. We came home. That was a big bummer. But you know, about five days home, I started thinking about how so many restaurants were going to go under and especially small plant-based restaurants. And what a shame at a time when I knew some, so many people were going to be hungry and needing food at the time. We did not know how extreme that second one was going to get, but of course food insecurity is always a major problem. So I thought, well, why don't we just, you know, find a way to get food from these plant-based restaurants and then people could donate. And then we take it to p- people that need the food. I, I called some friends just to get some advice and maybe some connections to some restaurants. And these friends uh, jumped in. We're like, I can help you with this. One of my friends, Rose is an event planner. She's incredible. And Jeanette who we found Jeanette through. What a an restaurant. legend. It, oh, she's, she's a genius. She's our marketing and social media person. And, you know, she does massive events and she just jumped on board to help us with this. And uh, Justin at darkroom records and people just jumped in like with, you know, arms out, like, how can I help? What can we do? And, and within five days, we were we had a website up In seven days we were delivering food and taking donations and we've grown to four cities, but, and we've also expanded. So the, the, the basic premise was we would feed people experiencing food insecurity through plant-based restaurants, helping to keep those restaurants open and addressing the climate crisis, because of course it would all be plant-based food and small businesses. And what we realized as we grew and we're taking these foods to, to amazing organizations that of course, food insecurity and food apartheid is such a horrendous issue in this country. Lack of access to healthy food in neighborhoods of BIPOC communities in particular. So we really focused on organizations that are supporting communities And we would be allies to those organizations providing healthy, nutritious food, and to some degree, as much as we could, and we're expanding this even more, educational materials so that people could learn why this food is important for their health and the health of the environment. So we've expanded to four cities um we fed over sixty thousand people, and that's not just sixty thousand people that's that's multiple you know a couple dozen restaurants supported kept open all the employees of those restaurants, of course, and the people involved in the food from the the farmers on up the the road, kept those doors open and, and, and made amazing partnerships with organizations doing incredible work. And we're trying to support them long-term and, and help their their families and their members learn about healthy eating and, and provide them with healthy food that's delicious and exposes them to plant-based eating. We're seeing incredible partnerships and it's been very, very rewarding. Hi, I'm Maggie Baird. I am excited to welcome you to a very special season of New Day, New Chef. Over the next eight episodes, you'll learn all about our organization's support and feed and get to meet talented chefs who have forged some of the world's finest plant-based restaurants. Plus, get tips on how they make their delicious dishes. So stay tuned for some great food, top chefs, and you never know who just might drop in to say hi. It's a new day, new chef, support and feed edition.
1: Amazing. What an achievement. And I've been watching from the beginning and I have to take my hat off to you. What a a wonderful platform you've built. And it's really given you what feels like an opportunity to create a framework to talk about the things that you really care about, which is veganism and food and food security. And one of the other things you've spoken out out about a lot, and I've noticed that, is systemic racism and the Black Lives Matter movement. just wanted to ask, how important do you think it is for white vegans to speak about these issues um, and meat eaters also to educate themselves on these topics?
0: Oh, uh, it's essential. I, I, I honestly was quite shocked. I was naive. I did not realize that there was a part of the vegan world that was <laughs> not aware of systemic racism and not not involved. You cannot separate food insecurity from systemic racism. You can't separate the climate crisis from systemic racism. So, you know, Kimberly Crenshaw coined the term intersectional environmentalist. You know, it is intersectional and it is really important that people start to acknowledge that and speak out about it. People of color by POC communities are vastly over-affected by all of these issues. And there is white privilege in being vegan, and and we do have to acknowledge that. You know, it's it's kind of easy to say, oh, it's easy to be a vegan, right? But it, it's really, you may not live in a community where you have access even to a fresh salad. You know, fresh why vegetables. Why so many?
1: Why so many of these people that we see the kind of naysayers who kind of verbally confront us on social media? Why do there seems to be so many white vegans that just are in denial? Why do they? are they blind? <laughs>
0: i do not know I, I think we have a tremendous race, racism problem in our country you know that's at the core of a lot of what we were talking about earlier and it's it's deeply embedded in our society and 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 uh people don't want to look at it people don't want to be uncomfortable people just don't want to be uncomfortable you know it's very horrifying to think of the society we've participated in and it doesn't feel good and I think people generally, you know, there can be an attitude of, oh, everything has to be good and positive. It's like, you know, we have to take these really hard looks at ourselves and our society and hit them square on and see where we fit into it. And if uh, if we don't acknowledge our own privilege and address the inequities in our society, we can't ever really make ultimate change you know, black community is one of the fastest growing communities in the vegan world, which, thank goodness, you know, um, <laughs> taking the taking health into your own hand because society has denied you that privilege, you know, is what it's going to take. And, and, and the, the white vegan movement has to come up to speed with it.
1: it has to step up I'm really excited about our mutual friend John Lewis's film they're trying to kill us which is coming out soon um this very
0: excited I can't wait for that to be out I think that's going to be a great tool for people really important important to talk about it and Mm. uh Get yeah, the word
1: out, hundred percent. I think you know we need to all, like you say, spend some time looking in the mirror and trying to understand about where we can make change, and confront these things. Whether it's you know, white, understanding what is white supremacy, what is racism, what is systemic racism, what is racial bias, and even sort of tapping into the areas of sort of gender and sex and sexism as well. All these systems of oppression are all interlinked and they're all connected. Um, it's one of the reasons I helped um, set up a platform which we've just launched. called Called Vao, V A A O, Vegans Against All Oppression, and what our plan and vision is to build a platform that helps people see the interconnectedness between all forms of uh, oppression, and creates a space for people to have conversations about social justice, whether it's feminism, trans rights, LGBTQ rights, um, Black Lives—you know, um, re- any anything to do with social justice—I want to create a space to talk about that because there are a lot of vegans who care about these issues but they're often shamed or shut down on social media for talking about human rights because they're kind of being told that veganism is only about animals and you shouldn't be talking about human rights because it detracts from the horrors of what's happening to animals. But I always say to people, Newsflash, you know what? I can care about both. I care about all the animals. And I care about what's happening to all of the injustice all the injustices across the world, whether it's the yogas who are being exploited, you know, being exploited who are being terrorized and imprisoned in China, or what's going on between the Palestinians and the and the Israelis, what's what's happened, you know, throughout history. There's only so much one person can take on, but just because I'm focused on one area doesn't mean I don't care about anything else right absolutely you know, absolutely
0: and, it, and you know even if you get on a more practical level like i completely agree with everything you just said but i don't understand why people can't see on a more practical level that taking on the bigger picture actually will help you in the long run right if you if you acknowledge the human suffering in the animal agricultural world and the social inequities etc that's only going to ultimately promote what what you say you care the most about which in many people's cases the animal part of it 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 all is going to end up with a more positive result there's not a negative to it we don't have a limit to our capacity for empathy and as you say like oh i can only care about this one thing and i i I don't have the bandwidth to care about this other thing
1: (laughs) because you know why does veganism exist it exists because of compassion right Mm -hmm. and that we exist as a movement to bring a compassionate to bring into reality a more compassionate world. And what is a compassionate world without compassion towards each other? How are we supposed to get people to care about animals when we don't even care about each other? You know, so we have to focus on building compassion within ourselves. There's so many wonderful words said and we could, you know, speak for hours about the power of compassion and how it can transform the human spirit. But ultimately, you know, social justice is about compassion. It's about seeing a world where people and animals, you know, cuz humans are animals too. Most people forget that. We are a species of great ape. And a lot of people don't like to hear that, but we are. (laughs) We're a species of great ape and we need to learn to, you know, see the suffering in each other, not just, you know, that selective compassion because I truly believe that compassion isn't selective. It's uh, it's infinite. Um, And when we expand that compassionate nature, to all things, it, it, there's a sort of wellspring. The Buddhists talk talk about it as as Buddha nature. There's just an infinite wellspring of courage, compassion, and kindness that can overflow and spill out into the world. And that's, I believe, that if we use that at the centre of everything that we do, then we then we can't go wrong.
0: Yeah, we need to make more and more celebrity out of kindness and compassion in doing good, you know, and, and there's always, there is a movement in that in the media, et cetera. We see it. It's a small one, but we need to make those heroes, you know, focus on service and heroes and less about consumerism and physical appearance, et cetera.
1: (sighs) Absolutely. (laughs) Well, before I let you go, I always like to ask my guests this one final question. If you were stuck on a desert Island and it was just you and a pig, Obviously, you're not going to eat the pig because you're vegan. Uh-huh. <laughs> I, I gave-
0: suddenly thought, oh, my God, you're not going to ask me if I would eat the pig. <laughs> oh God. You would I would eat- not eat the pig.
1: No, <laughs> Just FYI, um, <laughs> if I gave you one vegan dish, one book, and one music album, what would you take with you?
0: Oh, my gosh. One vegan dish, one book. Well, now, you know the album one is really hard because I have two children. <laughs> <laughs> so that is very hard I would have I think I I Is I just cheating to say I would I would have a compilation album I
1: think of, that's fine I'll, I'll of, let you have that
0: of Billie Eilish and Phineas <laughs> 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 uh, a compilation album for sure and gosh a book mm. wow that is so hard you you you've you've really put me on the spot here I, I'm looking at my bookshelf because I'm trying to go, you know, I I'm, honestly, I'm an audiobook listener, so mm-hmm. they're not mostly okay. on the shelf. Um, and I mostly listen to nonfiction, to mm-hmm. uh, biographies. This is going to sound simplistic, nobody will believe me, but there's a beautiful book called Love That Dog. <laughs> and I know Billy has said this too, but it's a it's the smallest, it's a young person's book. Uh, I would probably pick a, pick a young person's book to mm-hmm. be honest, because I love that genre. Mm-hmm. Um, I think love that dog. It's all poetry, and it it touches me deeply. And it's about love of a dog, so Sounds I might wonderful. say love I that dog. That. <laughs> um, and, and what's your food? vegan dish? Jeez, Louise! One thing, gosh. <laughs> does it? Does soup count? Because you you have
1: anything you want it's your island <laughs>
0: <laughs> i'm gonna say soup that's a broad category so right. i'm cheating a little bit yeah, but you i can, I you love can mix
1: it, it up with all the roots I, on the it, island
0: yeah you can make a lot of good soup and i love soup so i'm saying soup
1: amazing maggie Bad. thank you so much for joining us on the pbn podcast it was an absolute pleasure
0: so great to talk to you i love i love you robbie you're so awesome thank, thank you. you
1: maggie thanks for listening everyone i've been your host robbie lockheed and this is a pbn podcast we'll be back next time with more veganism food fashion technology science business and everything in between